Well, good morning, church. If you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 38 this morning. And just in way of introduction, this is a unique section in all of the, really all of the New Testament. Because beginning in chapter 13, all the way through chapter 17, it takes place in, in one night. It's interesting, as you go through the Gospel of John, you see all these things happening, and all of a sudden, there's this slowing down to really focus in on these last few days before the death of Christ. And because when we, when we look at chapter 13 through 17, what we see is that it's a unique chapter, or these are unique chapters in the sense that we see all these promises being, being given to the church. At this point, Judas has betrayed Jesus. He's left them. And what we're going to see in, in this last day is, in this last night, is that the disciples have, have now gathered for the Passover. And Judas, as I said, has betrayed Jesus. We're going to see that, that uh, Jesus will leave to go into the garden and, and pray, and he'll be arrested, and he'll be mocked, and there'll be these mock trials. And more importantly, it is the night before he will be crucified. And it's also unique in that Jesus is speaking to his true disciples because, as I said, G Judas has left. I mean, up until this point, Judas has been with them, and now Judas has left. And, and so he's sitting there with the 11, those faithful disciples. And, but when, when we look at these chapters, verse 13 through 16, we see he, he also prays for them in chapter 17. And that prayer is not only for them, but, but Christ extends that prayer to all who would believe. That includes you and I. And so the first thing he does after Judas leaves is he has this, this conversation with them. And his disciples, they're obviously confused. They've just been told that he would be betrayed. Disciples are, are, are somewhat hesitant. They are, are weak. And the disciples are, have been somewhat self-focused. You know, yes, in some ways they, they want the glory for themselves, and yes, they have all affirmed that, that He is the Christ, the, the Son of the living God. They know that He is the righteous one, the holy one, and they, they declare that. But in all honesty, their lives were not focused directly on the glory of the Lord. And Jesus, being alone with them, He, he seeks to encourage them. He, he wants to prepare them for His departure. And all that he tells them flow out of his, his great love for them. And he wants them to understand that his departure is not about their glory, but, but about his glory and, and his love for them. And he wants them to understand that he, he so loves them that, that he would want them to return that love to one another. And this is what John would remind the church later in his epistle when he says, we love him because he first loved us. So let's go ahead and read, beginning in verse 31 of John 13. This is the word of the living God. When he, meaning Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we just thank you for this, this time of, of worship that, that we can glorify your name. And we see in this passage a, a number of things. We see uh, your love displayed in the giving of your son and we see that love being uh, our example for how we should live, and we see that we need you. Father, I pray your blessing on the blessing of you on this church this morning, that as we hear the preaching of your word, that we would be encouraged to love each other as you have loved us, that we would live in a way that uh, the world can see who we are, that we are your disciples. Father, I pray that this would not land on deaf ears, but Lord, the words that I speak would be true and, and glorifying to you and that, that we would hear them and that we would love you and that we would love each other. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. There have been times that I have thought about my death. You know, there's times as, you know, my family grows older, as my kids are, are bearing children, that I, I have thought about my death. I thought, what, I, what would I do if, if I were sick? What would I do if I were uh, on my deathbed? And I've often thought that what I would probably do is really speak to my, my children and my wife and my, and my grandchildren uh, by extension to them. And, and the thing that I would want to convey to them is that there's hope that there's hope in Jesus Christ. I would want to, to tell them that they need to stand firm. And I've often thought that I would, I would really want to say this to, to my sons, that, that they, they need to take care of their mother. <laughs> they need to stand firm in the faith, and they need to, to press on. And, and what we see in, in these final hours before the death of Christ is that he does a similar thing. And, and this is known as a, a Jewish farewell speech. And you might think of, of Jacob's speech before he dies in Genesis. It, and it, it's a, a typical thing. And it, if you knew that the end was coming, you would want to, to d disclose to those you love most, your family and your friends, what is going to happen. And you would perhaps want to comfort them and, and encourage them. Maybe exhort them to obedience, to, to steadfastness. And sometimes you might speak of passing along something to them. We know that Moses spoke to Joshua about passing along his spirit, and Elijah spoke to Elisha about passing his spirit. And Jesus will do the same, not that he would pass his own spirit, but, but that the Holy Spirit would come and, and it would be their comforter. And through this section, verses 13, chapters 13 through 17, we see a, a number of recurring themes in this section. You know, Jesus talks a lot, a lot about uh, coming and going and where he goes, and, and they cannot follow. He says a lot about the Holy Spirit and his relationship with the Father and the Spirit. He says a lot about the disciples' relationship to the world. He says 
a lot about unity and joy. He says a lot about salvation and the, the judgment that is to come. But where he starts in, this, in these first few verses is simply this, the glory and the love of God. The glory and the love of God. He wants to talk about these two things on the, at the onset. In our passage, I want us to look at three points. The first one is this, and we see this in verses 31 through 32, that Christ's death provides the means that he would be most glorified. Secondly, in verses 33 through 35, we see Christ's death provides the example of love for his followers. And then lastly, in verses 36 through 38, we see Christ's death provides the only means for our salvation. So let's look at this first point. It may seem strange that that Jesus, at this point of his betrayal, would talk about his glory. I mean, you, you could think that you know, now that Judas has gone out, that he would maybe say, now the Son of Man is about to be uh, betrayed. Or he could say something like this, now we see that there is great evil in this world. Or maybe he would say, now I shall grieve together about what is going to happen, but he doesn't do that, does he? No, he, he says this, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now... Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. You know, after Judas has left the room, it, it, it sets in motion what God not only predicted through the prophets and the Psalms would happen, but what he had planned from all eternity past, that, the, that his son would suffer and die for his people. And so in one sense, the, the, the most darkest hour is now transformed into Christ's glorification. No, Jesus comes down from heaven to save his people on the cross, and it is in his humiliation there's glorification. We read this in in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Have this attitude, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a servant and being found in human likeness. And we see that that Christ comes, and it goes on to say that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's his humiliation. But it says, therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That's his glorification. In the death of Christ, there's there's humiliation, but, but there's also this glorification. And this is what the, the early church father, Origen, called humble glory. The cross is, is humble glory. And Jesus understands his glorification. And he uses this, this, this verb uh, to glorify five times. Look at verse 31 again. He says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. This is going to happen tonight. Very next day, God is going to be glorified in the, in the death of Christ. I mean, just two months ago, we, we celebrated the, the birth of Christ at, at Christmas. And if you think about this, in, in the life of Christ, we often read the gospel, and they're, they're kind of a fast forward, but since the birth of Christ till this day, it's been 33 years that Jesus has been living on earth, and this is the day and the hour that he came for. Yes, he's, he has taught us uh, amazing truths. He's, he's taught us about his love. He's taught us about the Father. He's shown us the Father. 
But this is the hour that he has come for. I mean, just think, in, in just a few hours, he will suffer false accusations. He will be mocked. He will be beaten. He will be scourged. He will be stripped naked. And in all these things, Jesus will say this, now is the Son of Man glorified. I, th- I like what, what John MacArthur said about his glorification. He says this, he will basically vindicate all of the promises of God, validate the covenant of God, and he will provide salvation for otherwise damned sinners, and that deserves glory. He will destroy the power of sin. He will destroy the power of death, and that deserves glory. He will destroy him who had the power of death, the devil, and he will ultimately consign him to the lake of fire forever and ever, and that deserves glory. He will satisfy God, propitiating God by paying the price that God has deemed necessary. He will bear in his body all the sins of all the elect of of God through all of human history. And he will offer himself as a sweet-smelling savor to God, fairer than any sacrifice ever offered. He will satisfy offended divine justice and the broken law of God. He will fully satisfy what God requires. He will say, it is finished, and that deserves glory. See, God is glorified, or Jesus is glorified in his death because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what John Calvin says this, the the glorious triumph of the death of Christ. The glorious triumph of the, the, the death of Christ. But it's not only Christ who is glorified in his death. Look at verse 31. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God, God the Father is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. No, it is through the death of Christ, that the Father is also glorified. And he, he's glorified in a number of ways. He's glorified in the Son's perfect obedience to him. He's glorified because it displayed his power. You know, as, as Satan and, and these evil men tried to put Christ to death, eventually God will raise him f- from the dead. And in that, God the Father is glorified. You know, he's glorified in the Son's death and that it displayed his, his faithfulness to to provide the promised Redeemer. I mean, you will hear us often go back to the very beginning, to to Genesis 3.15, where God promises this Redeemer, this Redeemer has finally come to crush the head of Satan. God is glorified in that. The Apostle Paul will pick up this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where he says, but God shows or demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. In that, God is glorified. John will say later in John, or 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Speaking of Jesus in, in Hebrews 12, it says that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. And we can easily look at the cross and think that that this is the shame that, that, that somebody would die on a cross. It was, a, it was known as a curse for somebody to die on a tree. And yet Jesus scorns that shame and he, he endures the cross because it brings his, his Father glory. And that brings us to our, 
our second point, and it's this, that Christ's death provides the example of love for his followers. No, Jesus is glorified in, in his death on the cross, but we know that he, he will rise and he will sit at the right hand of the Father, but now he need, he's going away to the Father, and now he needs to prepare his disciples for his departure. And he is leaving them, and he is, he is not going to be with them here on earth any longer. And, and now that Judas has left, look how gently he deals with them. He says in verse 33, he says, little children. It's the only time in the Gospels that this term is, is used, little children. Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, that's a, a wonderful term of affection for them, little children. Again, as I said, Judas had left, and, and now Jesus speaks to his disciples in a loving manner. And, and, and one of the consequences that, that in, in Christ's death is that he is going to be leaving them. That, and they're going to remain here on earth and, because we know that they have, they have work to do. They have the gospel to preach. Um, they're going to be left alone without their master and their, their hearts are troubled. And he'll say in chapter 14, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. But they, but they are troubled. I mean, you could imagine. They've been with him for these three years, and, and now their master is telling them that I'm going away, and, and you can't come, and you're going to see later that Peter says, I want to go. I want to go with you. But, but he tells them in verse 34, he says, that a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And they need, to, they need this. They have experienced the love of, of Christ on a daily basis for three years. Who's going to love them later? They're going to need to love one another. No, they, they need this, and they, they need this to help them sustain themselves. And notice that he doesn't say, I give you a new command. He says, a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you. That, the emphasis on this, this new commandment a new commandment I give to you. But I want you to notice something here. And, and the newness of the command is not for them to love one another. The newness of the command is not for them to love one another because they had been told in other places to love one another. So it's not a new command in that sense. I mean, Leviticus 19.18 says this. It says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's not the newness of the command. What is new about the command is that it, it is the type of love that is exemplified in how Christ loves the church. They've been told, they've been told to love their neighbors as themselves. They've been told that they're to love their enemies. But the newness of the command is that Christ is the example for that love. He says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's the newness. Just as I have, I have loved you. And how did Christ love the church? He gave himself her. As I said, in just a, a few short hours, he's going to, to lay down his life for it. You know, there's the, the new example. Yes, you've, you've heard it before, love your neighbor. We all know that. But you have never seen love 
like Jesus Christ displayed as he goes to the cross, just as I have loved you. And there's never been anyone like Jesus Christ dying on the cross for the sins of his people. I mean, we saw earlier that he, he stoops down to, to wash his disciples' feet, and that's an example of his death. And he, not, he doesn't only wash the 11th feet, he actually washes, washes the one who, be, who would betray him's feet, demonstrating his love. And he demonstrates that the, in, in the washing of his feet, and, and he was their creator. He had, he had created them. He had created their feet, and yet he stoops down as the creator to wash their feet. And this new command will be the, the mark of, of God's people. Look at verse 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And, you know, this commandment is a, to be a distinguishing mark of his followers. So when unbelievers look at us, when unbelievers look at Christians, they should be able to say that we are Christians because of our love for one another. And if they say... You know, that person, I doubt that they're a Christian because they don't love one another. That's not really something that they shouldn't say. I mean, according to Jesus, he's saying, look, people should know who we are by our love for one another, how we care for one another, how we live for one another, how we die for one another. You know, John will say in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We should be able to examine ourselves and say, look, I know that I'm a Christian because I do love other Christians. But sadly, there are so many who, who say that they're Christians but do not love one another. In the early church, in the first few centuries, the, the Christians were known by their love for one another. In fact, the church father, Tertullian, it was observed during his time period that, that Christians, what they were doing is they were, they were loving each other in such a way. There, there would be Christians who were, who were extremely sick and, and even dying. And, and we, we know that when you go in to serve and love those who are dying, that you could possibly do what? Contract what they have and that you would die yourself. And the Christians were just doing it. They, they weren't afraid. They were, they were going in and they were serving. And Tertullian writes, and he says that those outside the church were saying, see how they love one another. The church is a living testimony to the, to the love of Christ. And this is what Francis Schaeffer calls this type of love, the, the final apologetic. Yes, we need to preach the gospel. We need to speak about Christ. We need to talk about what he has done and who he is. But we need to, to live this out in front of people. Now, see how they love one another. And consider this, Christians are to love one another as, as Christ has loved us. Not, and this is, this is not left to our own discretion. Well, I think... I think I, I can love the church this way, or I, I can le uh, love the church this way. No, it's not left up to our, our own desires, our own devices. It's, it's a new command that we, that we love Him as, as He has loved us. In my studies, I came across this Peanuts comic strip. And in this Peanuts comic strip, Lucy is talking to her brother Linus, and 
And Linus has declared that he wanted to be a doctor. And in this comic strip, Lucy says to him, you, you a, a doctor, ha, that's a big laugh. She goes on, you, you could never be a doctor. You know why? Because you don't love mankind, that's why. And Linus says, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. <laughs> but unfortunately, <laughs> but unfortunately, that's kind of us at times, isn't it? We say, we say, I love the brothers. We say we love the family of God. And then somebody does something to you that discourages you or frustrates you. And it seems that the love ends. No, that's, that's when love demonstrates itself, doesn't it? I mean, aren't we glad that Jesus didn't love us like that? That when we frustrate him, then we, when we do something to him, that he just rejects us. No, brothers and sisters, we need to love as Christ loved. In reality, Christians ought to make it a conscious duty to, to love one another. We need to think about this when we're frustrated by brothers and sisters. How can I love them? You know, I remember doing premarital counseling or, or marital counseling, and at times I'll, I'll talk about loving, and we know that the Word of God says love your, your neighbor as yourself, Right? And so I'll tell couples, you realize that your husband and wife, your neighbors, <laughs> need to love your neighbors yourself. And Paul will say in Ephesians that, you know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The Bible also says that we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, there's never, there's never a relationship, brothers and sisters, that that we have the option of not loving somebody. No, we're, we're commanded here to love each other as Christ has loved us. But it doesn't stop there, does it? No, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Therefore, we should love the lost while they are yet sinners. You know, how we love one another is a, a witness to the world that, that we are His let the world say of us, oh, how they love one another. And that brings us to our third and final point. Christ's death provides the only means for our salvation. We see that in verse 36 through 38. And, and you might ask, how, how do you come up with that, Jeff, in those verses? Because this is where Peter inserts himself in this situation, as Peter does often. Peter often... <laughs> will say things very hastily, only to get rebuked by Jesus. But, but Peter inserts himself in this situation. It says in verse 36 that Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Now, and the reason that, that Peter cannot follow him now is because it, it is not the time for Peter to die. Jesus is going to die, but it's not the time for Peter to die. And we know from church history that, 
that Peter will die, that Peter will, will be crucified, and, and not wanting to be like his Lord in his crucifixion, he'll actually ask to be crucified upside down. And so he does do this, and, and Jesus alludes to, to Peter's death in, in chapter 21, and this is after Jesus was raised from the death. It's after, uh, after Jesus comes to Peter and says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And so there's, there's this reconciliation. But Jesus says to, to Peter, he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. You will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go, where you do not want to go. And then John makes this, this parenthetical statement. He says, this he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. See, Peter will follow him later. He will glorify God in his death later. But right now, this is not his time. And th this really leads me to the main reason why he cannot follow him now is because only Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, Peter can't die for the sins of the world, but, but Jesus can. He, he can be the sacrifice for the world's sins. And only Jesus can reveal the Father perfectly and be glorified in him. It's in, his, it's in Christ's love that he is the sacrifice, not only for our sins, but for Peter's sins. And I love how that love is highlighted here because in the midst of Jesus being betrayed by Judas, you see this, this loyalty in, displayed by Jesus to, to Peter. And, because before the, the new commandment is given, Judas leaves to betray him. But after the new commandment, Jesus predicts that Peter would also betray him. And you see, it says in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but now, follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And for, for Peter, and, and really for us, that's a, a great word, isn't it? Afterward. Because we all come to a place where we disobey the Lord. We all come to a place that at times in our life, and our lifestyle, and our decisions we make, we dishonor the Lord. But aren't you glad that there's an afterward for us? I am so glad that there's a, an afterward. And, he, and he, he basically discloses to Peter that you're not going to stick by me, but, but you will afterward, you will come back. And he doesn't give that comfort to Judas. And so that there's this, this betrayal by, by Judas that is truly ultimate, but there's this betrayal by Peter that's, it's only temporary. And the difference is, is, is that, that Peter is one of his elect disciples, that, that he had, had chosen him. And so Jesus will keep him. And that word afterward means so much to us, you know, that we can hold on to that. And, and maybe you have, maybe you have betrayed the Lord in some way. And, but you can say, Lord, I'm, I'm grateful that that my salvation is, is not based on that, that, that my, identif my, my identity is, is not in my sin, but my identity is in, in Christ and what he did on the cross. Now, Peter thinks he's going to, 
to lay down his life for Jesus. Look at verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. D.A. Carson calls this Peter's haughty independence. Look at that statement that Peter makes here. How ironic that he says, I will lay down my life for you. It's interesting that that's basically the same words found in John chapter 10, verse 11 of the Good Shepherd. It says this, the Good Shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And here, Peter is declaring to, to Jesus Christ, I will lay down my life for you. Peter thinks, no, you know, I, I, I can do anything for you. I, I, and once again, Peter has gotten it all wrong. Jesus does not need Peter to lay down his life for him. But Peter needs Jesus to lay down his life for him. You know, Peter often seems so bold and, and brave. Peter will falter. I mean, later we see that he will deny the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times. Again, D.A. Carson in his commentary says, sadly, good intentions in a secure room after a good food are less attractive in a, in a dark, darkened garden with a hostile mob. Isn't that true? It's easy to say, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you want me to go when it's easy. I mean, that's why we pray for our, our brothers and sisters in the world who are really suffering persecution. And we say, you know, Jesus, I'll follow you to the end. I'll follow you to death. I'll, I'll die for you. I hope we will. But it's what, really when the rubber meets the road that, that we find out, isn't it? You know, it's been said that people will say, you know, Jesus, I'll die for you. But the question is, will you live for him? Will you live for him now? No. Peter says to Jesus, I will lay down my, down my life for you. In reality, it's the other way around. Jesus must lay down his life for Peter because this is not about Peter's glorification. This is about Jesus' glorification. And Jesus goes on in verse 38. He says, Jesus answered, Peter? Peter, will you? Will you really lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you, this is just not some casual remark that Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, here is the, the reality for Peter. You will not die for me. You will deny me. There's a, a deep, deep, deep finality in the fact that he, he does it three times. He doesn't just do it once. He does it three times. We know that Jesus will, will die for Peter, but Peter must learn to die to himself, to be quiet before the Lord. And I love how later when, when Jesus comes, comes to him and he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, yes, I, I, you know I love you. But he asks him again, Peter, do you love me? He asks him three times, do you love me? Feed my sheep, he tells him. Now, Jesus will restore Peter. But Peter denies him these three times because this is not about Peter's glorification. It's about Jesus' glorification. 
This is not about Peter's example of love to be lived by, but it's about Jesus' example of love that all Christians should live by. This is not about Peter's death for Jesus, but Christ's death for Peter and sinners. It is his hour. It is his time. And so Peter must undergo this humiliation. Peter must be humbled. And then restoration will come. Christ will lay down his life for Peter, and Jesus has laid down his life for us. And I like what this one Puritan, John Brown, said. He says, the Christian who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Brothers and sisters, we must lay down all the pride that we have and not dwell on all the things that we will do for Jesus. But but glorify God for what he has done for us. And then by his grace, we can serve him. Now we must, we must glorify God for what he has done for us. And, and understanding that his grace is, is what empowers us to love him back. Yes, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and Again, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the living word, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for his death on a cross, that through all these things, these miraculous things took place through the death of your son. It was his humble glorification. And we thank you that he has given us the perfect example of love, that we might love one another. And we thank you that He's the perfect Lamb of God, and through His death, we may have eternal life and hope in Him. In His name we pray, amen.